What's up, everybody? Hey, listen, if you guys didn't get a chance to listen to our patient advocacy panel with the Canadian research on psychedelics and cannabis, stay tuned because we got a treat for you. We're going to be playing that next. Let me first start out by saying thank you to Podcast Powertrain for helping produce my show. These are the guys you need behind you if you're looking to start your podcast. Also, I'd like to thank Powered by Riverside FM. That's right. Our show is powered by Riverside FM, one of the best platforms to actually have a podcast on. So I'm going to have some links at the end of the show or in the show notes. Check them out. These are the two people that you need to get up, get with to make your podcast top 100. medicine and psychedelics on mental and physical health we're bringing you stories of how these medicines have changed lives and can save lives we want to teach you the healing power of plant-based medicine this is the good dudes grow 2.0 what's up good dudes grow i am glad you're still with us and this is a final and third part of this this is great very informative it's been wild it's been exciting and i could not believe that i was a part of this so here's the final part three of our patient advocacy for cannabis and psychedelics with first responders. Thank you so much, B. And I guess I, you're kind of tempting me to hop in with my own story as well a little bit. So as I shared at the beginning of the panel, um, I started using cannabis and psilocybin after experiencing around 16, I think it was, traumatic brain injuries over the course of 10 years. And for me, similar to you, Noah, actually, the real turning point for me was actually psilocybin. I still remember the first time I smoked CBD and how like immediately the tremors in my arms stopped. And I was like, oh, my God, I feel slightly more human again. But I first started microdosing um, because, I mean, my brain was broken and I didn't have access to a therapist. So first thing first, I was like, I'm not going to try and mess myself up too much. <laughs> By doing a hero dose. Shout out to you, Noah, because I do not have the guts to do that. Um, so I started microdosing. And for me, it absolutely changed the ways that I was able to function in the world. And I think knowing that there are, you know, yes, it's amazing to have the one patient, you know, myself as an example, like the one patient is like, yeah, I microdosed. And all of a sudden, I was able to like, I went from not actually being able to read a full book, I was a voracious reader. And then I messed up my brain and I wasn't able to read anymore because um, my brain just couldn't handle the stimulation to devouring novels again and like actually getting back into my passions. But there's also all the other patients. I'm N of one in one single substance, substance in one single instance. But what do we know about the mass population? What do we know about the other people and the ways that these injuries affect more people? So I love the idea of opening the space up to include more of these conversations because I think they're so important, but also to include research statistics. So it's not always that one impactful story, but moving it into a space where this is what the group is doing. And I think this is kind of a beautiful space to open it into the questions from the public. If unless you guys have anything else to add before I dive in there. I would love to add a little thought about my major learning when it comes to connecting to patients. Um, yes. Just 
So my position is um, we want medical psilocybin access for all in medical need, people with PTSD, substance use disorder, anxiety, depression, but we're focusing on supporting people at end of life because we know that's what Health Canada will give us exemptions for. Um, and so my job is to connect with patients, um, a lot of different patients who are facing a cancer diagnosis, an end of life diagnosis. And from my learned experience of connecting with these people over and over again and seeing so many different stories and so many different people's experiences, the common thread throughout it all is that people's physical manifestations of their disease is because of their mental manifestations of their perception of their reality and of their trauma. Um, and what I'm really starting to think about really clearly is that like, this Western medical model that's spending so much money on the physical will benefit from healing the mental. Um, and just knowing that like shifting perspective to find hope and meaning and connection to the spiritual is the way of healing all parts of us. Um, and I really truly believe that psychedelics have the ability to heal more than just our minds. I could not agree more, Natasha. And actually I feel like this is a beautiful jumping off point for Sabrina's question which is that she'd love to hear more from you and what you've seen from the patient perspective in palliative care patients and the impact that psilocybin has had on them. Yeah, I definitely think that um, those facing end of life are in a very extreme situation in which because they have limited time left, they're very motivated to make change once they find out that there is an option for change. But often what I'm seeing is that people feel hopeless and, and this word of hope is this huge theme that I'm running into, is that I connect with these people and they they are told by their physicians that they have no time left, they can't do chemo anymore, they can't do radiation anymore, which you could think about other diagnoses, right? You're, you have PTSD, they give you SSRIs, they tell you to go see a counselor and you're like, what else am I going to do? I have no, no, nothing else is going to help me. And the moment people realize that there is this other option, that there is something else that, that, that could help them, they start to heal. It's like it's not even the psilocybin journey itself, like taking the substance. That is like a, a catalyst for growth and change and healing. But the moment they have hope and the moment they have something to look forward to and the moment they have some sort of meaning and something to motivate them to think that there could be a chance that something could help them, people start the psychedelic journey. Um, and then, the, then when they get access to the psilocybin, it's like everything that they built while they were building hope, they like they're starting and they're starting to build hope and they're starting to maybe sleep a little bit better. And they're starting to talk to people about their emotions more because they know they're going to have this journey. And then they have the psilocybin journey and then they're like catapulted to this whole other place. Um, and then further through integration. And, and, and it's just like, then it becomes part of their life. It's like people didn't know there was this process of talking about their emotions and getting into the deep and dark and nitty gritty of their of their souls. And once they learn that, it becomes part of who they are. They then they then are always doing the work because they learned that they can do the work, um, which is really beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing, Natasha. That's such impactful work that you're doing. Um, so I'm going to move on to the questions from Dr. Paula Cubillos. Um, as patients, what do you think clinical research priorities should be? Uh, I guess I could jump in on that. I guess the priority okay. number one would be, uh, you know, the risk, obviously. You know, uh, I recall a time when, 
you know, I was the darkest I ever was. And, you know, I could be set off by any number of things. Um, and, you know, the, the, the risk in a conventional sense was to tranquilize me, was to give me, uh, you know, SSRIs, uh, antipsychotic medications, and it just turned into this snowball of, you know, nothing was good, nothing was bad, everything was just, uh, and eventually that, you know, that to a certain degree, um, you know, had a stabilizing effect, but it, it was, it was, it's not a long-term option. Um, I think risk management in um, allowing somebody, you know, um, I, I believe that post, you know, a traumatic injury, is, the solution to tra- traumatic injury is a holistic um, solution. And that solution comes from, you know, uh, back in the Roman times, Roman uh, soldiers, there's camaraderie there. So they would have, you know, the ability to work alongside, you know, uh, others that had a shared experience. Uh, we have three firefighters here who very well have that camaraderie. And I'm sure to a certain level, these these men and women who uh, are serving our communities, um, you know, they're doing a lot more for each other than, you know, uh, a therapist who sees them for 15 minutes and writes them a prescription for something that's going to stabilize their mood. Um, I think that if a person was allowed to explore options um, in a safe container, um, then you know what, you'll, you'll find a lot more, I, I feel like you find a lot more progress. Uh, I did, I did, like I said, I spent 10 years um, working at my mental health. I feel that I knew the exact instant that I was injured. And I feel if you could, comp- if there was a way to compress what I had learned over those 10 years and apply the things that worked and cut the fat of the things that didn't, then you know what? I would still be, I would still be an effective member, an effective soldier. I would not have lost my career, um, and I can prove that by the fact that I have now, you know, uh, reintegrated myself to the point where I'm, I am responding to things. You know, not as a, a first responder, but as a, a towing business owner. So I, I do have, uh, on occasion, have um, exposed myself to, you know, some very. Um, not so nice situations that I would not have been able to handle um, while I was still injured. So I, I feel that risk, you know, mitigating risk is going to be the most important thing and proceeding only when, um, you know, it might not be comfortable for the user, it might not be comfortable for the person, uh, but proceeding when the risk has been at least managed. Obviously. And if I can build on that as well, Noah, I think, For me, on my end as a patient, one of the most important things I see is regulations for dosing and administration. I mean, we had the amazing presentation by Dr. McCallum yesterday on the cannabis side. But I think back to even similar to your story, Noah, of like finding cannabis where you could. I've been in that position and it's been similar with me with psychedelics as well. Given the way that regulations are currently set up, we need a framework for people like us to be able to access these medicines in a way that is accessible and in a way that is safe. So we know, okay, given how this drug interacts with the human body, these are the metrics by which we can measure how it'll work for you. And, and knowing just dosing, add, knowing administration, go for it, Matt. Yeah, just to add on to what you're saying and, and Noah as well, 
is when we're dealing with public safety, we have to deal with this whole concept of fitness for duty. Uh, we're in safety sensitive positions like many other people in society. And so, um, you know, what Rob and I are looking at is just the value of the fast acting, fast metabolization of these substances so that we can uh, basically return to work rested for duty, so to speak. Um, Rob, do you have anything to add on, on that angle? Yeah, I think, I think from a clinical perspective, the fast acting, fast metabolizing and the ability to engage in, in meaningful sleep is key. Um, but additionally to that, from a labor relations perspective, me having the opportunity to represent over 11,000 professional firefighters in the province of Ontario lends a certain um, expertise to dealing with um, workers' compensation and opportunities for discipline as a result of members engaging in plant-based solutions sometimes outside of the prescription from their doctor, but also as a result of not having any other opportunity, you know, because a lot of the times the SSRIs and the mood stabilizers and everything else in, in their minds tend to make it worse. So they're looking for these alternative solutions, but because the doses to your point, Meg, the doses aren't regulated and we don't know how fast it exits the body. We have had situations where, members are, you know, being called on the carpet from their administrations for a potential um, lack of fitness for duty. So that, from a labor relations perspective, is extremely important, just as it is from a clinical perspective. Yeah, thank you so much. Gary, Natasha, B, do you have anything else to add to that question? I think it's such a great question. No, I, th I think Rob and Matt and everybody else hit on it. So we have one last question here from Jorge. Once you get past the skepticism hurdle of first responders themselves, the biggest block really is city administration. How can we get involved in studies to help prove that these great therapies work? The, the simple fact is determine the ROI for the employer. If you can, if you can show, you know, and I, and I say this as sensitively and respectfully as possible, but at the end of the day, um, the administration of, of managing personnel, whether it's at the municipal, provincial or federal level on either side of the border, um, there is, there is a, uh, financial cost to it as much as there is a personnel cost to it. So if you're able to, sh you're able to demonstrate the effectiveness on it for the staff and additionally demonstrate the effectiveness of it on the quote bottom line, um, that would be, uh, in my opinion, probably the the path of least resistance to administration acceptance. And also, just to extend on that, psychological injuries increase with years of service. We know that. So veteran populations are especially at risk population within the municipal fire service structure. And they're more likely to have lots of time off from 50 to 60 years old as they enter retirement. So if we can target that particular demographic, that's the demographic that I haven't done the numbers, Rob would know, but probably cost the city the vast majority in terms of time off because of physical ailments and the cumulative nature of psychological trauma and the lack of ability to bounce back as fast from dealing with shift work over a 25 to 30 year career. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at a, like a, a typical workers' compensation claim for an occupational stress injury, 
Um, the amount is, is quite significant, both from an actual compensation of the individual while they're away from work, and then having the replacement, having the premium cost, depending on whether your employer is a Schedule 1 or a Schedule 2 in their workers' compensation scheme. So it all it all blends into, you know, innovation, um, proper solutions, proper dosaging. But again, it's tied to that ability to demonstrate benefit to the member and bene- uh, demonstrate benefit from a financial perspective from the administration. I think there's always also the aspect of real patient stories and like we can think about the bottom line. And of course, that's important, but also just like digging into real patient, real emotion. And like if the administration sees that this people are talking about this and it's really helping them, like I like to be optimistic and think that humans want to help other humans. And if they really see and like it touches on like a part of their heart where they're like, this is really helping people and they understand it and it's destigmatized and they're motivated to actually like make good in the world. I, I like to think that that's possible as well. I'm, I'm going to piggyback off of what Natasha said. It's I have a, a CBD company. I started making it when my daughter was on opiates to try to help get her off opiates. And I was hiding behind a curtain because I was afraid my department would say, Oh my God, he's selling drugs. Cause by, and then THC is still illegal for us to use here, but, Regular CBD is not, but I was afraid that they would say I wasn't able to do what I, I could do. But when I gave it to several firefighters and those firefighters ended up calling me back in three or four days saying, hey, what'd you give me? I no longer have these voices talking to me anymore. Uh, I'm able to sleep without having nightmares. I decided to come outside of that curtain and start progressively go forward. And what I did immediately was go to my health committee and see what they would say. And they basically slammed the door in my face. I went to my union president and says, Hey, what do you think we have this conversation? Doesn't mean we change anything. And he says, no, not till it gets federally legal. He slammed the door in my face. And I went to UN Resources. And as soon as I mentioned cannabis, it was like I had COVID. They all disappeared on me. And, and so what I ended up doing was, like she said, I started helping the boots on the ground. So I decided let's help the guys I can help. The more people that I help, it started talking. Then it started buzz coming on. Then I said, how else can I get the word out? I created my own podcast and started having doctors and influencers, other other athletes or firefighters. that went through the same thing we all went through to get, tell their stories and then tagged all the, the administration, the firefighters and had them listen. And now all of a sudden I received a, a text message about two weeks ago. While I was in my bunk room saying, hey. Uh, looks like we're talking about removing or or adding cannabis to our this year's contract. Would you be willing to come and sit with us in case the commissioners have any questions on it? So, it, so starting by helping my own brothers and sisters overcome pain, sleep, and educating them, the conversation got bigger, and that's how I got got through one of the biggest hurdles I ever had to get through over the last two years. But one of the biggest problems we have in the state of Florida and a lot of other states in the United States is that. Teach is that cannabis is medical. Our our drug tests are still piss tests. Those piss tests only pick up metabolites and not the THCs. We have dispensaries, we have hemp shops, we have grow houses. We all go into a fire and get in secondhand smoke. We're gonna inhale something and six months down the road, pee in a cup and we're gonna pop for a drug test. We're gonna we're gonna fail that drug test because it's gonna hold the metabolites in our, our, our in our fat system. So that's something that I'm bringing up to administration saying, hey, listen. It's going to cause a problem sooner or later down the road. So we need to discuss how can we overcome it or how can we change it to actually make it beneficial to all of us. So that I just wanted to add that to everybody. 
Thank you so much for sharing, Gary. And thank you, everyone, for being involved in this panel. I'm so grateful that I got to share a stage with you. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the show. And like I said at the beginning of the show, I'll have some links for you. So if you're interested in starting your podcast yourself, one of the best places to go is podcast powertrain right now they're doing an, an amazing offer for all their course material if you want to actually help get your uh, show ranked all you got to do is go to gooddudesgrow.com forward slash powertrain and you'll get all the information there also if you're looking for a platform not sure which platform to use to record your show on riverside fm is the one we use you can also go to gooddudesgrow.com forward slash Riverside. Check them out and you will not be disappointed. Again, thank you for all listening to the show and we will see you. Well, we'll see you, but. Good Dudes Grow 2.0. Thank you for tuning in. If you're still listening to this, that means you gained something out of this episode. So make sure you share it with a friend, leave a review and subscribe. So you never miss an episode of the Good Dudes Grow 2.0.